0: and welcome to the starting stories podcast. On this podcast, we interview entrepreneurs, creatives, investors, and more to find out how they got started and the habits and learnings that made them successful so you can apply it to your own life. This episode's guest is Kendall Tucker. Kendall is the CEO and founder of Polis, the fastest-growing data company in the door-to-door sales space. For nearly 3 years, Polis has been selling the most technologically robust mobile canvassing app in politics. a variety of corporate industries. Polis has also expanded as a leader in the door-to-door energy sales space, with partnerships alongside the two largest retail energy companies in the country. Kendall is a Forbes 30 Under 30 honoree, and Polis has been featured in Forbes, TechCrunch, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, and on the Today Show. Before starting Polis, Kendall worked as a management consultant where she advised executives at multinational corporations and Fortune 500 companies. Kendall and I met at Techstars Boston, where I was working and she was building Polis and bonded over running, which she seems to enjoy far more than me, among other things. She's a good friend, a great CEO, and someone I always make sure to meet up with when I'm in Boston. In this episode, we cover how she got the original ideal for Polis, how she transitioned to working on it full time, her experience as a woman in tech, and much more. The audio is a little rough in patches, but the content is worth it. Don't forget to check out the show notes with links to things we talk about, Kendall's work, and more at grandman.net slash podcast. Please enjoy this episode with Kendall Tucker. Hey, Kendall. Thanks for being here today.
1: Hey, I'm happy to be here.
0: So before we get into more serious topics, uh, (laughs) I want to start with your Harry Potter obsession. When, I
1: love everything related yeah. to Harry Potter.
0: Uh, when did this start? And then I think when I heard this story originally, you mentioned you ran like a very popular fan website or something for a, a time.
1: No, you're overstating things. <laughs> um, so I have loved Harry Potter since I was a child. Uh, I think I actually started once the third book had come out. But that was more uh, because of how old I was. Um, and it was incredibly meaningful to me. And then when I was in middle school, I had no friends for a period of time because girls are mean. Um, and so I started writing fan fiction on a Harry Potter fan website. And this was incredibly impactful to me because I mean, I honed my writing and everything like that, but I also made online friends. And for the, three or four months in middle school. I didn't have friends. This was an escape for me. It was really fun. I never told anyone about it, probably till college. Uh, But then I got to college and told a few people, and it turns out everyone did that. So it was like the stupidest secret to keep, because everyone loves Harry Potter, and it's meaningful, and everyone wants to write their own stories as part of it. Um, So yeah, my New Year's resolution this year is trying in many situations to ask what would Dumbledore do. And... (laughs) I'm, I'm happy to talk about Harry Potter, this entire podcast, if that's what you want to do.
0: So, you wrote fan fiction, but the fan fiction was popular, right? Or the site was?
1: Yeah, the site was called Muggle Night. It was extremely popular. Um, I wrote a few pieces that did well and got some awards. Um, I also wrote a, um, a romance piece about Oliver Wood and katie bell i think um but i have deleted that off the site and no one including my family has read it so it was very popular but it's incredibly embarrassing
0: this will be like published after your death as (laughs) manuscript of the kendall tucker harry potter chronicles
1: exactly right
0: (laughs) okay so that might be a good segue into what you were like in high school what were your interests, and what were you thinking about or involved in?
1: Yeah. This is deep stuff. So, when I was in high school, so I gone through the Mean Girls phase in middle school. Um, I went to craft schools who were very competitive uh, with each other and everything that they did. Uh, so, by the time I got to high school, I was kind of over the competitiveness, and I just wanted to be, excuse me, people's friends. I was in student government, I was, uh, vice head of school and junior class representative and that sort of thing. Um, I was captain of the volleyball team and that was probably the thing that I was most excited about in college. Um, and I still tried to do well in school and wanted to go to the best college I could. Um, so I actually went back to Shirley Fonnell on high school. That's where the majority of my friends are from. They'll be my bridesmaids one day. Um it's hard not to miss high
0: school sometimes it's very carefully hmm. uh, I wouldn't say that's a typical necessarily high school experience I had a great time in high school but a lot of people I know I guess maybe went through that middle school phase you described during high school yeah I get
1: that um I think it's also hard if you went to a big high school and you're concealing some part of your identity or anything like that um but I went to a a small high school that was unbelievably accepting of different types of people. So for example, we had multiple transgender students and everyone was totally fine and happy with that. Uh, so I think I was really blessed just to go to, uh, an open-minded, uh, interesting high school.
0: Yeah, that is, that is pretty amazing actually. Um, (laughs) and then after high school you went to Columbia to Mm -hmm. study political science What led you to choose Columbia and poli-sci?
1: Yeah, so honestly, at the time, I would have said something different, but I chose Columbia because it was the best school I got into, Uh, and I was competitive, and that meant a lot to me at the time in a way that it doesn't anymore, Um, but I loved Columbia. The opportunities uh, of being in New York were incredible. I was able to have jobs every semester that I was there, and working has always been Uh, Really important to me, uh, giving back to the community. Um, And I chose political science because I was extremely passionate about politics, and I thought that was the industry I was going to work in for the rest of my life. So I had uh, volunteered on a presidential
0: campaign in 2008. Uh, In 2010, I was getting a lot more
1: involved with campaigns, starting to work on campaigns, and I proceeded to work on campaigns my entire time in college while doing a political science degree.
0: So all those jobs that you talked about holding, were they all in politics?
1: No. Um, so I did campaigns usually during the summers when I was home in Massachusetts. Um, I, the coolest job I had in college is I worked at time magazine. Um, so I was on their public relations team and I got to hang out with George Clooney when he came and spoke at time. Uh, I got to hang out with Mario Bellatelli. I think that's his name. Mm -hmm. Um, I got to hang out with some of the biggest Wall Street guys, uh, and it was all about getting them good press when they were on the cover of the magazine, Um, and it was really a pleasure because it's the sort of job it feels like you can only do in New York.
0: And did you know going into, like, while you're going into college, that working was going to be important to you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I had started working, and um, my mom thought it was extremely important, but I make my own spending money in high school. So, you know, I worked at a movie theater, I worked at a head store, and that was a big draw about Columbia. So they don't have Friday classes there, and the expectation is you go downtown and learn about New York and have a job. So it was a huge draw for me. I actually worked in my first semester, which I didn't expect to do, but I got an offer at a nonprofit that I felt like I couldn't refuse. Right. And it was great. I actually graduated from college early because I was just more excited about Real world learnings and what it meant to, to work and learn in that capacity because I felt like I had been in school for 21 years. I had, <laughs> had enough.
0: And did you have to do anything special to graduate early, or?
1: Um, not really. I had enough credits to graduate. Um, just because i had taken a lot of classes uh, each semester, and they told me the only thing they told me is that I wouldn't be able to write a thesis or get honors. And so instead I wrote, um, a senior paper with the professor who I really looked up to at Columbia. And after I graduated, he, uh, submitted it for honors and for a thesis without asking me, um, like to surprise me. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up getting honors Phi beta Kappa and all that stuff. Um, despite graduating early like, and I was really, really touched that he did that.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And you also spent some time at Oxford. Was that while you were at Columbia or that was after? It was. So I studied abroad my junior year of college. It's actually the only year I didn't
1: work because when you're at Oxford, you are not allowed to work. Great.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And what was, was that wild. opportunity like?
1: Yeah, it was great. I uh, studied at St. Peter's College, Oxford, which is known as... Uh, the college that's most accepting to people of lower income backgrounds, minorities. So I thought it was a a really special microcosm within Oxford, which is predominantly uh, wealthy and and white. Um, And I got to spend my time just studying politics and economics. I had some of the best teachers in the entire world because it was Oxford. And when you study at Oxford, it's actually uh, one-on-one or two-on-one tutorials. And so what that means is you meet with a tutor about once a week. A tutor is a professor and you write a 10 page paper, to prepare for the class and then you read it out loud to your tutor and they critique you throughout uh, the hour long meeting. And it's just, it's a totally different way to learn and be introspective and study what you actually care about. Uh, It was terrifying my first few weeks there when uh, one of my tutors in particular used to just, mocked me relentlessly for being an American, um, but I left Oxford being a, a much stronger academic, uh, very confident in the things that I cared about, which was uh, still actually a lot of American politics, um, and then obviously Oxford is also all about getting to know people from all over the world, and competing in intercollegiate rowing, all of which I got a chance to do.
0: Yeah, yeah visited some family in Cambridge a few years back and I remember them describing that method of learning, which I think also happens at Cambridge. And it does. I was always jealous of that because I think the self-direction that you get there is more valuable for post-university than any of the courses or anything that I took while studying.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's, it's about self-direction and what you're interested in, as well as uh, fairly difficult time management because you're given every week you're given a list of 50 books and you have to choose which ones to read and write the paper excuse me and if you can manage it well you can probably do it in two days uh a week uh, but if you manage it early you are pulling on writers all the time
0: <laughs> yeah fair enough and you just mentioned rowing I know you're involved in a bunch of different stuff from athletics like rowing, to politics and so on how did those extracurriculars contribute to your college experience and what advice do you give or would you give to college students looking to make the most of their time there? Yeah,
1: that's such a good question. So, college differs a lot depending on where you go. So, one of my best friends in the world went to Amherst College, which is probably the best university in the country, um, but it's tiny in the middle of nowhere. And so what she got out of college was very different than what I did. But she went in knowing that, so she was able to work in some labs. But so really, she got to focus on her extracurriculars, her friends, in four years of just pure learning. Um, whereas when I talked to people who went to Columbia, uh, I think it's really important that you go out and explore more. Um, you are an adult into college, uh, regardless of the fact that you right uh, and I think the most valuable opportunities I had were off campus. Um, and although I loved doing extracurriculars, they were a lot of fun. When you come from high school, it feels like that's incredibly important. Um, but I think college is a time to start to refine what you care about and start to focus on the things that actually matter to you. And that's really hard when you were the kid it was the best at everything in high school. Um, but you really need to start putting your time into one or two things instead of
0: everything. Right. And the, the opportunities that you had while working at Columbia, did they help get you introduced to those or were those things you had to go out and seek on your own?
1: They, I mean, the Columbia Career Office was wonderful. They certainly were helpful in finding uh, some of the jobs. Uh, but a lot of it you could do on your own. Um, they, they maybe held you a path and I got the other half on my own. Uh, the one thing that I think does need to be touched upon when you tell people they should intern in college is um, unpaid internships are a wildly discriminatory and unfair system. Polis, my company Polis, would never do that. Um, And obviously you can't tell people to get internships if they need money for their families. And so right now the law is that any corporation has to pay. The government still doesn't have to Um, But I would encourage people to ask for what they're worth and ask to be paid at the very least minimum wage if they're going to do any of that, because it's just not fair to to your classmates who are on financial aid or anything like that. Right.
0: That's a good point. Um, Okay, so you got your start in, I'll, I'll call it real politics as opposed to studying politics, but politics and campaigning while, I guess, while you were not even in college yet, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I started volunteering on some campaigns in 2008. Uh, And so I graduated college, excuse me, graduated high school in 2010. So I got my start there. You know, I was, I was very young. Um, I actually ran for uh, a town committee when I was 19 maybe and state committee also the same year when I was 19. Um, And so technically was elected, not that it was particularly competitive. Um, And so that was a lot of fun. I was able to hold an elected position and talk to people who are a lot older than me. Um, So, yeah, I started young and it it took me a while to um, work my way up and meet people who were actually influential and doing cool things. Um, But if you actually care about politics, you can start extremely young and be a campaign manager by the age of 21.
0: (laughs) What was your role on the local committee or whatever you got, I guess, state committee that you got? Uh, Yeah. So
1: the town committee, the town committee, everyone was the same unless you were the chairperson. So I was a town committee person.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and the state committee, I was the college add-on delegate. And so what that meant was I represented college students and I, to get elected, I actually needed the other people on the committee to elect me. And so this is my first time doing retail politics for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just had a list of The hundred or so people on the committee, and I would sit in my dorm room and spend like two hours a night calling them, (laughs) and I would leave messages, and I would follow up, and I wanted to have a conversation with every single person so they would know who I am and elect me.
0: Right, and then what issues were you working on when you were elected?
1: It is a fabulous question. Um, This feels like years ago. uh,
0: Or what was the focus of the committees in general?
1: Uh, The committees were about all things politics in the state of Massachusetts. I don't remember which issues were big at the time, but I do remember that I was really cool because the average age was retirees. So it was just really cool to be a 20 year old who had a voice and was able to advocate for my peers in a way that otherwise they wouldn't have been heard.
0: Right. Okay. So on to I mean, after, after college, you joined a management consulting group, Mm -hmm. where did Polis fit into that or the development of Polis and, and, or are they related and what was your role or thinking going into the job at Parthenon? Yeah,
1: excuse me. So when I was graduating college, I had offers, um, on political campaigns and in political organizations. But I decided that I felt like the technology and data and politics was so limited that taking a job would be very frustrating in politics. Um, I had managed a state senate campaign the summer of 2012. Excuse me, and what I had found was I had these plans of how to use data, how to reach out to the right voters, how to aggregate social information, social media information But unfortunately, there weren't tools that did that in any sort of automated fashion. So instead, I would leave the office at 8 or 9 p.m., go home and manipulate data for like four to six hours a night. And then the next day, my door knockers would come in and they would knock doors all day. So they were wonderful. There's like 20 of them would knock doors for eight hours. Um, But then I would go home and be doing this data entry and data manipulation until the wee hours. Um, and I was just so tired all the time and I I didn't know anything about tech, so I certainly couldn't build it. So when I was graduating from college, I decided that instead of going to politics, I would try something totally different. And so I got a job at the Parthenon group and Parthenon's a management consulting firm that advises Fortune 500 companies on their strategy. Um, and they do really incredible work in education, which was something I was interested in as well as private equity uh, and any other type of strategy. So I started at the birth group, I loved it. I was in a class of 20 young people who are all very high achieving. Um, but within a few weeks there, what I realized was that they were taking these hard problems like what I saw in politics. And then they were just doing all the legwork to either solve the problem or start solving the problem. And so what I realized was that I could interview all of these people in politics, learn what their major problems were from a data and strategy perspective, and then put together a business plan to fix them. And so that's exactly what I did. I ended up interviewing 109 people who work in and around or around politics. And I asked them how they liked the tech, how it functioned, what they would wanna see improved. and I got a few friends on board who were technical and they started building this data and software solution that aggregated all sorts of data into this mobile app where if you liked, um, a candidate or a campaign, you could log in and immediately be given the right data to start knocking doors in your neighborhood. And we gave it away at first, this was the end of 2015 and sold it to a few campaigns, um, and they each used it for about two months at the end of the 2015 cycle. And um, all seven of the campaigns that were using the app uh, won their elections by 20% or more. Um, and these were like competitive elections. And so this was just a crazy result. Um, this is the sort of thing you dream about. And so at that point, it was the end of 2015. And I, I felt to myself like we, we definitely got uh, something good coming. And there's a lot of other organizations that are interested. So I left Parthenon um, on really, really good terms with them at the end of 2015. Um, a bunch of those partners have still been involved. Some of them are investors. Uh, I still go there all the time. They're extremely supportive. Um, but yeah, I feel I feel really fondly both for Parthenon and for management consulting in terms of how much it can empower you to to solve other hard problems in your life.
0: Right. A few things in there. Um, The job at Parthenon, was that an offer that you got or how did you get the job originally?
1: How did I get the job originally? I interviewed a bunch of consulting firms that um, recruited at Columbia. Uh, I actually, this is funny, I got a few offers at consulting firms and I I didn't feel super enthusiastic about them. They uh, traveled a lot and they did just a lot of corporate work. And then... Uh, a family friend actually works at Parthenon, and he told me about it and how they do all this unbelievable education work. And they don't travel too much because company culture is really important to them. And I said, "Great, like get me an interview." Um, and he got me a first round interview. And while I was there, they were like, "Look, you seem fine, but we don't really hire out of Columbia, so we're probably not gonna not gonna take you." <laughs> And because they, they, they're a small firm, they, they generally hire out of like four to six schools. And I was really sad because I had seen the culture and I was so impressed with all these people. Um, and then they called me a week or two later. I may have actually accepted. No, I don't think so. Uh, I was going to say I may have actually accepted an offer at a different firm, but I don't think I did that. I was close to accepting an offer at another firm. They called me a week or two later and they said, hey, we have an extra spot. Do you want to come to our... Um, our long interview day. And, and I said, yes, definitely. I got on the next train to Boston. Um, and I interviewed with them and they made me an offer a few days later and I tried to accept on the spot. Um, and the partner on the phone said, Hey, you should probably talk to your family and make sure uh, this is actually right. And you can call back and accept later. Um, (laughs) so yeah, I just feel very fondly about Parthman.
0: Right. And you mentioned, you kind of deployed the product initially and then you had some great results with the elections and the, the victory margins. Did you know, did you have a plan going into that test on when you'd leave Parthenon to pursue it full time, or it was something you realized sort of after you got the results?
1: Um, yeah, I think I already had the plan in place. It was just getting a lot to manage both Positions And Parthenon actually let me go part-time to work on Polis. Mm-hmm. And they let me work on Polis out of their office because they're the best. Wow. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I already had this plan in place. I think I was already fundraising to some extent. Um, when you're excited about something, or at least when I'm excited about something, to some extent, you just want to do it and try. And the worst case scenario is you get another job or you go back to your first job. Um, so it was scary and I obviously took an enormous pay cut, but, uh, yeah, I was already starting to make moves out of 4th and
0: And did you second guess that or you had, I mean, um, most of the consideration typically for people when they're thinking about leaving to start a startup is, or most of the worry I think comes from like, what am I going to do financially? What do I have? I mean, I think a lot of people overestimate how bad the worst case scenario is, as, as you mentioned, but. I mean, were you, had you saved to to go off, or you had already gotten some money for polis?
1: Um, I had saved. I had saved. So um, okay. my first year in consulting, uh, you get paid fairly well in management consulting, and so a lot of people just spend a lot. And I've never been interested in shopping or spending very much money, right. so I'd actually put a lot away.
0: So that whole-
1: um, I was. I, I was worried about it, but I was worried more from a relationship standpoint. Um, like it, it would have been very hurtful if, if Parthenon maybe wasn't supportive. Um, I was worried about it from a fear of failure standpoint because it'd be embarrassing if it didn't work out. Um, my feeling, and I also get that I'm very blessed. I think it'd be partic- like unbelievably difficult to start a startup if you have student loans. Mm-hmm. Um, but not having student loans, like, I I did actually at one point move in with my parents um, and uh, I I always felt that the worst case scenario was it didn't work out and I got a different job. Um, And so, yeah, it kind of breaks my heart that people think that entrepreneurs are are special or a different breed of person than any other person. I I really think the only uh, distinctly correlated thing is people who don't have student loans. Mm-hmm. um, and have some sort of family support. And I think that's a shame and something that we should do better, um, at, at helping more people become entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, having like family financial stability is obviously, uh, hugely helpful to doing a startup.
0: Yeah. That's a, I think that's a point that doesn't get mentioned enough, but I, I know certainly it was always the same case for me. Like I would, I don't think I would have thought twice about getting a typical standard job after college if I had loans. And I probably would not have considered entrepreneurship if I didn't know that the worst case scenario was my parents buying me a plane ticket to come home, which always has been the worst case. And uh, I don't think it gets talked enough that often that's required. Like I, if I wasn't in that position, then I don't think um, it would have been nearly as likely to pursue some sort of entrepreneurship path. I'm curious, too, about the support of uh, Parthenon, because I think, I mean, that's pretty much the only time I've ever heard a story like that. (laughs) (laughs) Did you, I mean, how did you bring that up initially to talk about, you know, can I go part time on Polis or... Were they actively mentoring you going into it, or did you have a specific converse- conversation, or did it just sort of develop? Ah,
1: uh, it's such a good question. No, I certainly did not go in with this idea. Um, I don't know. I think at some point, I, you know, I had a lot of partner mentors. I, I think I sat down with with one of them and. I guess I know which one I sat down with. I sat down with Chris Jenny, who is uh, the president of Parthenon. And I just told him about it. I told him I was passionate about it and excited. And, you know, we hadn't incorporated or anything yet. So there wasn't really a conflict of interest. Uh, and I asked him for advice on what to do and and how to move forward. And with his support, other partners were supportive as well. Um, but in, in management consulting, or at least at Parthenon, they don't expect you to stay for more than two or three years and the best people do stay. And a lot of my friends are still there. Um, But if, and when you decide to leave, they want to continue working with you. So if you go to a different firm or you start your own thing, obviously at some point you're going to need consulting, you're going to need strategy consulting. Um, So from their standpoint, it always makes sense to maintain the relationship as long as everyone in the situation was cordial and good to each other. Um, So they were great. And if, and when we get to the, the spot to be big enough to, uh, to work with them at a, at a real level, then we absolutely will. Hmm.
0: That's I'm impressed. I think that's fantastic, but I, I don't think that's a necessarily a common. It's view. not,
1: it's not common. One yeah. of my good friends was at another consulting firm and they found out that he had a startup. Maybe he hit it. Maybe that was the problem. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did get fired.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. So you can't have a conversation with everyone, I guess, if you're in management consulting. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. So we met at Techstars in Boston in early 2016, which would have been, I guess, just after you left to pursue Polis full time. Mm -hmm. And since then, I mean, you guys have made a ton of progress. You've also shifted focus a bit. Maybe talk about how the focus has changed from politics, um, what you're focusing on now and what you guys are pursuing this year?
1: Yeah, so we did extremely well in 2016 um, when I first met Graham. Um, We worked with about 150 political organizations and knocked about 3 million doors. And we made a real name for ourselves in politics, which was great. Um, But as you can imagine, at the end of 2016, despite having made fairly good revenues Um, All of the campaigns ended. And so we were left in December, January of 2017 saying to ourselves, like, who are we and what do we do next? Um, And so we had had a tremendous number of corporations reach out uh, and like request demos in our system on our website. Uh, We had never really reached out to them before because I don't know it' was just beyond what we did. Our software said things like voters and voter data and canvassers uh, so we we sat down for a team meeting at the beginning of 2017 and we essentially had two options. we either could have gone full born into politics, built out other tools, been the best political tool out there, or we had really come to love door- to door outreach, and we had realized that there was this market need for technology and data in the door to door outreach space. So there's all sorts of organizations in energy and solar and telecoms, insurance, home services, uh, real estate, uh, all these people go door to door and that's how they do their sales and that community outreach. And no one was really servicing that space. And so we talked as an organization and we just felt extremely passionate about community outreach. Um, for all different sorts of organizations, and so we decided to double down on door to door. And what that meant was we raised our seed round at the beginning of 2017, and we spent about six to nine months um, rolling out our corporate software. And what that meant was it's it's uh, we've now sunsetted our first version, and our second version is just extremely flexible. So if you're a political campaign, you can still put in all your voter information. You can still monitor people's party affiliation and their support scores. Um, but if you're a corporation, so we generally work the energy companies right now. If you're an energy company, instead of voters, you have contacts. And instead of party affiliation, you have credit scores or clean energy affiliation or anything like that. And so in the same way that our political organizations do, our energy companies take this treasure trove of data that we have. So we have thousands of records um, on any given person in the United States. And they use that to have positive and effective conversations at the doors. Um, so instead of saying, hey, do you support my candidate for Congress? You knock on the door and you say, hey, would you be interested in switching to renewable energy uh, for your gas and electricity?" Um, so, it was a huge pivot. Uh, we really only rolled out the software in August of 2017, so we're very new. Um, but we're now working with the two largest energy companies in the country, and we're loving it and knocking more doors than ever.
0: Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I, a lot of people, I think, hold the perception that door to door sales is dead or dying, but that's really not the case at all, is it?
1: It's really not. So, door to door sales. In retail, which is selling vacuum, selling makeup, that sort of thing, it's not doing that well um, because multi-level marketing is now taking place on Facebook, what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, But for organizations that sell complex products or services, so bigger ticket items such as solar panels, uh, gas and electricity, your telecommunications bill, um, that's actually growing really fast. And the reason is because these are not – necessarily sexy industries. So people are not Googling this. So if you think about who's trying to switch their telecoms bill, there's, there's probably about 10% of Americans who go onto Google and they, they're they searching for prices and they're willing to switch. But the vast majority of people, once they start paying for it, they don't really think about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if you're able to knock on someone's door and give them a good, honest deal, so for telecoms, we'll lower your bill. Maybe you're just laying fiber in an area uh, for energy, it's how can we switch you to renewables? How can we decrease your monthly rate? If you're knocking on their door, the cost of acquisition is lower because the Google search terms are so expensive at this point. Mm-hmm. And the lifetime value of that customer is about two and a half X someone you would get online because they're not necessarily actively thinking about it. Like you've definitely done a service for them. You're helping them to save money. Um, but then they they tend to become really loyal customers because they know your guys. Your guys have been out in their neighborhood. Um, and they feel pretty good about your organization.
0: Right. Oh, that's fantastic. And I think, uh, presumably, the corporate world is a little less cyclical than uh, all it is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is. We've even seen um, one of our orgs is doing a lot of work out in Illinois right now. Um, and their door knockers are, are the best. They're going out in any weather. They're extremely committed to their jobs um, so, one of our recent problems, which is a new one, is uh, their tablets have been freezing. <laughs> <laughs> so, not like Polis is freezing on their tablet. Polis is doing great. Literally, they're, I think they're using uh, iPads. I'm not sure. They might be using Androids. But their iPads are freezing. And so, we're trying to figure out how to keep their iPads warm enough because they're committed to knocking in every weather.
0: And it sounds like that should be... Like a meme for uh, Canada or something?
1: Uh, definitely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, that's awesome. Um, as always, looking forward to continuing to watch your guys' progress. While we have a few minutes, I want to make sure we get to this, which I know is an issue you're passionate about and certainly one that's been in the news more lately. Um, but women in tech. and You recently posted a story about an investor meeting in particular that I read, but I know that's just one case among many. Um, If you want, maybe describe that story in particular or more generally, some of the consistent issues you face as a female founder in tech.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. So one thing I try to talk about, this issue comes up all the time. Um, One thing I try to, point out and talk about a lot is the major problems for women in tech are well there are a lot of major problems obviously sexual harassment and sexual assault is a major problem um there have been really famous stories this summer a bunch of vcs had to step down uh the founder of 500 startups obviously had to step down because Mm -hmm. of sexual harassment allegations um i have run into that a few times uh with investors and advisors um I think what the next step of what needs to be discussed is not just sexual harassment, um, but also just different ways of perceiving and dealing with women that people don't always think about. Um, it's very easy for me to leave a meeting and say, wow, that guy harassed me or was saying something sexual and just completely blackball him. Um, but what's harder as a female founder is it feels like quite often, um, men in power consistently interface with us slightly differently. Um, so I met with, a uh, not one of my investors, but an investor in Boston a week or two ago. And I've, you know, I've heard good things about him. My friends, my male uh, friends really like this guy. And I sat down with him and instead of talking about my business or the things that we're passionate about or what we're working on he decided to spend about 20 minutes telling me uh why I'm stupid and everything we're doing is wrong and how I like couldn't possibly understand business um and I left that meeting and so I actually got up and left he was he was being wildly inappropriate not in a sexual way but in just a a rude condescending way and so I left that meeting and I reached out to a few friends and it turns out Um, that female founders really can't work with this person. Um, He's consistently um, dismissive of female founders. I I actually don't think he does any of this purposefully. Uh, I definitely don't think he sits down and is in any any way malicious, Um, but he just doesn't know how to interface with women in the workplace. He's older. Um, And so we've had a, or I've had a number of situations like this where um, people don't necessarily think about it, but I had someone reach out and say, hey, it seems more like you're a cheerleader than a businesswoman. Um, and I don't—I just don't really know how to respond to comments like that. Uh, I think any comment about a woman's appearance in the workplace is inappropriate. Uh, whether or not you're being kind, it's just not relevant. I don't think men's appearance is nearly as relevant in the workplace. Um, thank God my team has been absolutely spectacular about everything involved with this. Um, and so far, we've had no problems and we're continuing to build a culture that's extremely respectful, uh, not only to women in the workplace, but we have, we're have we more than 50 percent minority and immigrant. Um, and so it's just something that we talk about all the time is how do we treat each other like equals, even when you come from different backgrounds or you look differently or you're different genders. Um, so, yeah, I think my major takeaway uh, of being a woman in tech is it's a nuanced problem. Um, it's a tough problem because I think most people aren't, don't do things maliciously. Um, but I think particularly men in power uh, need to think about the ways that they interface with women um, and just their unconscious biases and, and how that makes us them talk to us a little bit differently.
0: Right. Um, okay. So a few things in there. You, it's something you talk about all the time. What form does that, Take. Do you guys have something formal scheduled or you just make sure to bring it up whenever there's an issue? How do you breed that culture? I guess that's willing to talk about it all the time and keeps it forefront. Yeah.
1: So Polis has daily meetings um, and their calls because we have a Boston team and we have a Utah team. And so every day at 1030 Eastern, we all get on a call and we talk about how things are going and we try to keep it really quick. It's a stand up. So Um, you don't want anyone uh, like really delving into problems Um, but what you say is you say this is how things are going and this is something that like this is some reason why I'm stuck and whatever reason you're stuck like when you get offline your manager or someone else on the team can help you offline Um, so in those meetings especially on Mondays and Fridays where we get a little bit more time to delve into issues um, we have spent time talking about People's reactions to either personal situations or current events. And so, for example, um, when the immigration ban happened, which I believe was exactly a year ago today, um, when the immigration ban happened, there was a lot of people on my team who were really concerned about their visas. Um, and these people are unbelievably important to the functioning of our business. And so, we did stop and all have a conversation about what it meant for people individually. And then what it meant for us as an organization. And I think that's really important because we all come from really different backgrounds. Um, my coworkers in Utah, there are fewer immigrants, a lot fewer immigrants in Utah than there are here in Boston. Um, but they obviously care deeply about their Boston colleagues. They all know each other really well. Um, and so after uh, my negative experience with the investor last week, uh, we talked about it in stand up and, Uh, my male colleagues, you know, they'll ask, they'll say, well, how did you know that maybe he's just a jerk, right? Like, how did you know that it it was gender related? Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, like, I don't think you can know that in a lot of situations. Um, but you can start to ask around, um, and see if there's a pattern of behavior. Um, and also you can think about just the patterns you see in your own life, uh, where people are constantly treating you a little bit differently. Um, and my male colleagues are, are super understanding and interested in that. And I think when they start their own companies, they're are going to do, uh, even bigger, better things. They're going to take these learnings and be really spectacular managers moving forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's a good point. I mean, you're obviously having these conversations with male colleagues and discussing it. What advice do you give women in tech for, I mean, you mentioned in this specific case, you ended up just leaving. And I know you were <clears throat> trying to have a conversation around trying to get to the root of the issue before that actually happened. But what advice do you give women for in tech or other situations for navigating and dealing with this? And then the follow-up question to that is for your male colleagues in tech or people like myself who are interested in impacting these issues what advice do you give them or what actions do you think they should be taking as well
1: yeah so for women in tech it's it's a tough question um to some extent we do a lot to just support each other you know if you have a bad day or a bad experience um it's about texting uh your friends who also go through this um occasionally there have been whisper networks when there have been uh, investors who or, or any men in power who have been particularly uh, harassing women. Um, but the biggest thing I think women can do is we just have to keep fighting to, to be in power and to better ourselves. Um, and so every time you climb the ladder, you have to make sure that the ladder is still there behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm still really young. I'm still, you know, I'm not at the top of my game yet, but it's extremely important to me that I mentor and hire younger women, or not necessarily younger, but women who are earlier in their careers. Mm -hmm. Um, And the more women we have in power, the better this is going to be. I'm really excited because there's eight Boston VCs. We know most of them who are actually holding uh, women office hours uh, Mm -hmm. in a few weeks. which I think is so cool. I mean, these are women who are at the top of their careers. They're doing amazing work. And they're just taking a few hours out of their day to say, look, we're only going to meet with female founders and make sure that all the women in Boston can succeed. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of men who want to be allies, um, I think listening is extremely important Uh, sometimes. and, And I don't actually think my colleagues or friends do this particularly often, but sometimes there is this natural response that is, Hey, it probably wasn't as bad as you're saying. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't come from a place of malice. It comes from a place of, or lack of understanding, um, and wanting to, to soothe the the situation as fast as possible. Um, but I think the best thing that allies of of any kind can do is say, like, I respect your experience. I believe you. Um, and we're going to work to, to be better than that. Um, yeah I think that's the major
0: thing you can do. Hmm. No, I think that's great. Okay, I want to be respectful of your time, so we'll wrap up with some some rapid questions here, maybe, and then we'll uh, we'll call it a day and we can revisit some of these in the future.
1: Yeah,
0: what is a book or books that you've gifted most often or have had a big impact on you recently? Recently. You probably don't so get this time is my dirty,
1: no, 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 See, this is my dirty little secret. I do have time to read, and I do read. I read a lot, but I find my job particularly stressful, so I read pretty uh, shitty books. <laughs> I like reading books that are similar to other people's like reality TV problems. I don't watch reality TV. I just read uh, some silly books. I am currently reading, um this wonderful book about a female spy network in world war one. Uh, the spy network was called Alice's network and the book is probably also called that. I read it on a Kindle. So I'm trying to look what it's called.
0: Not many people would admit to that, you know,
1: reading absolutely horrendous books. Yeah. Like if you've read gone girl or like that quality of book, yeah. look, gone girl is a great book. and, and the, Author, I would say nothing bad about her. I think her name's Jillian Flynn. Um, that's the level of book I like to read.
0: Yeah. I, so you uh, get lost in that. Yeah, I actually find like I read business books or similarly nonfiction books when I have time to read, like during the day. But once it gets past, gets past like a certain time at night or I want to read before bed, it's usually like novels or lighter stuff.
1: Yeah, I like to read lighter stuff before I go to bed. And, you know, I'm looking at my Kindle list. The best book I've read recently is definitely American Kingpin. It was fantastic.
0: Cool. All right. I'll check it out. When you think of the word successful, who comes to mind?
1: The woman who founded Spanx. Hmm.
0: Why do you consider her successful?
1: So I believe she's the first female or maybe the youngest uh, female self-made billionaire. Uh, Her name is Sarah Blakely. And she started Spanx out of her basement. She realized there was something that women really needed, but all of the top retail brands were run by men. And so she brought like an early prototype of Spanx to, I don't know, like TJ Maxx or something. um, And they laughed her out of there. They said women would never wear it. So she started selling it. To all of her friends, all of her family, everyone loved it. Um, And she ended up doing it out of her basement for seven years. Her first big client was Nordstrom's. And now she's one of the most successful women in the world. And I like to read her story just because I know she went through all the struggles and ultimately persevered.
0: Yeah. Wow. How has an apparent failure set you up for later success? Or do you have a favorite failure? You like to remember? Always.
1: Every failure. So I think one of the hardest things to do, or one of the hardest things that happens to a startup is when someone announces that they're leaving. And this can be for any reason, whether it wasn't a culture fit or they want to go to grad school or a different job. Um, and this, so I tend, I'm trying not to, but I tend to take this personally. Um, so my team, is, is very similar to my family. I care deeply about each of them. I really, really want them to succeed at the same time the company is succeeding. Um, so we had, uh, a senior level developer leave a while ago at this point, maybe six or seven months ago. And I was just devastated for all the reasons uh, said above. um, but then, you know, we had to scramble, we had to get scrappy and figure out who was going to fill that role as soon as possible. And we ended up bringing on a few people to fill that role. Um, and, you know, they, they were like slightly younger guys, a little bit more affordable, that's how we could bring on a few. Uh, and it turns out that these like scrappy younger guys could just roll product much faster. Um, they like had the startup mentality in this unbelievable way I hadn't seen before. And our product has been, unbelievable since this happened we are literally rolling up a feature every single week um and you know I was so sad and I still wish this person nothing but the best I think this person's phenomenal um but I really felt like it was a failure at the time and it turned into the best thing that's happened to the company
0: interesting in the last few years what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life
1: I've been sleeping a lot more than I used to. I used to think that if you were working hard, you were sleeping five hours and working all the time and only take breaks for exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've realized that if you or if I procrastinate less, if I'm more focused, um, if I keep my eye on the prize, then I can sleep eight hours and be a generally much happier, more productive person. So I don't feel bad about the fact that I sleep more than everyone else.
0: See, and I, so I'm very passionate about this issue because I think it is yeah, for a long time. It's been like used as a badge of honor when you sleep a tiny, totally. And totally. A, I think people lie either not necessarily on purpose, but I think they lie to themselves about how much they do sleep in a week. Um, So I think people sleep more than either they claim or they believe they do, first of all. Mm -hmm. And second of all, like the science behind it is just so overwhelmingly conclusive. (laughs) You are at a small fraction of your productivity, happiness, um, like mental capabilities when you're sleep deprived that it's I think it's terrible. So I'm glad you say that. And I also love sleeping slash napping. So
1: I love sleeping.
0: Yeah. Okay. Last one. When you feel unfocused or overwhelmed, what do you do or what questions do you ask yourself to get yourself back on track?
1: That is a great question. Um, So those are kind of different things. If I feel unfocused, I block like every single website. I use an app called self-control. Mm-hmm. Um, So then even if I'm on focus, there's nothing fun to do online. So I generally do my work. Um, If I'm feeling like incredibly anxious or or, um, distracted by my stress level, um, what I'll tend to do is write out uh, an email detailing what I'm concerned about um, and putting it in, I think, putting it down in writing is very helpful Mm -hmm. um, with ideally some sort of game plan. And then I'll send it to my board or my colleagues or whoever like needs to deal with that. Um, And it's great because it gives me some reprieve where I'm waiting for feedback Um, at the same time as the process of writing it down tends to make it a little bit less terrifying.
0: Do you always send it to people or are there times where you just write it down?
1: I always send it to people. That sounds crazy. I was a, I was an only child growing up and somehow that left me like very, very people dependent. I don't like being alone ever. Um, I'm very extroverted. I get my energy from other people. Um, so yeah, I, I think I always send it to people.
0: <laughs> no, I was just curious because a lot of people write because they find like writing it down on a page is cathartic, but yeah, I don't, I don't do know that. a lot of people that send it off, which is Pretty interesting actually getting feedback, yeah. and, uh, sort of sharing the burden with someone else or at least getting an outside take. I think is interesting. I think
1: at the very least I would send it to my partner, which right. um, it, it's like functionally the same as, as not sending it to anyone because we live together and we're extremely close um, and they don't work in this space. Right. But, yeah, it's it's always sending it to someone
0: else. Awesome. Okay. Uh, what's the best place for people to find out more about you and Polis and whatever else you're working on?
1: Yeah. I mean, the best place is polisapp.com, which is P-O-L-I-S-A-P-P.com. Um, and then feel free to follow me on Twitter or something.
0: Cool. We'll put the link in the show notes. Thank you Perfect. so much. Pleasure as always.
1: Thank you. You're the best. This is so fun. We'll Congratulations on all your success as well.
0: Oh, thank you. We'll, uh, we'll do this again, maybe hopefully sometime in person.
1: Yes, please.
0: Okay, thanks. Talk to you later. All
1: right, talk to you later. Bye-bye.
0: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening on. And don't forget, you can find show notes, links to everything we talked about, and more at grahamman.net slash podcast. I would also encourage you to sign up for my weekly email list to make sure you get notified about new blog posts and podcasts. See you next time.